Well, good morning and welcome back to what is our fourth message in our series, looking at the seven messages found in Revelation to the churches. Let's just start with a word of prayer. Gracious, loving God, we give you thanks that you open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to your word that is in front of us. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit is upon us today, that we may know with truth what you are speaking to our hearts, what you are speaking into the church. Lord, may your Holy Spirit be upon me as I, as I talk today and open up the Bible and bring some understanding. Lord, may this be your understanding. May these be your words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been doing our preaching series um, looking at the seven messages to the church, churches found in Revelation. And each week we are looking through one of those messages. Uh, and they're so dense, they're so powerful in each of the statements that they make to each of those churches. And we know that as a church, when, when we hear written church, it's not the building, it's not the denomination, it's us as individuals within it that make up the church. And that's an important understanding for us, that we cannot, when we read the Bible, we cannot just place it onto others and think this, this does not talk to us. It is important for the, these messages to the church to be speaking to us today in our context as much as it spoke to the church when it was given. It also speaks into the future as well, and that's the nature of apocryphal writing that we find in Revelation. Over the last three weeks, we've had a message to the church at Ephesus, to Smyrna and to Pergunum, and today we're having a message to the church at Thyatira. So that we can understand this, so we can understand the message to the church at Thyatira, we need to actually unpack a little bit. We need to unpack what the city of Thyatira was like and what the church was like in that, that time period. But we also need to unpack that what it says about Jezebel. So let's just start with the, the church in the city of Thyatira. See, Thyatira was, was actually quite a wealthy town. Um, it was small in size. It wasn't one of these big, huge metropolis, um, but it was built on pretty much flat ground, which meant it was not easily defendable. It was actually an open country and it could have been taken over pretty easily. It was vulnerable to attack, which is interesting because it's also an important trading and manufacturing centre for the regions around it. So the important aspect of this was it was on trade routes. It was on locations that people would go and pass through the city, pick up goods and take them elsewhere. They would, they would make things, and there were many skilled craftspeople in those places. There were linen weavers, there were um, garment makers, there were rope makers, there were bronze workers, um, there were potters, there, there were tanners, there were bakers, there were dyes of cloth, and an especially purple dye that we actually find, if we read in Acts 16, we actually find an encounter with Lydia, who um, is by the river, at Thyatira, praying and worshipping. And you have this whole interaction in uh, Acts chapter 16. 
And it's really important that you kind of, we kind of understand that indirection as well. It gives us powerful insights into how we, we relate with people, how we um, bring people into knowing about Jesus Christ. But probably one of the biggest aspects that we find for the city of uh, Thyatira and the church at Thyatira is that the church is pretty much devoid of persecution. We've had in the first three um, churches, we've had this whole section of persecution. Here the Christians were pretty much free to worship as they wanted. There were no major threats to them. Um, The only thing that they had was that they needed to kind of figure out a way that they would work with the, the guild trades. The guilds were like our modern-day trade unions. They controlled the various aspects of trade. So if you were um, a potterer, there would be a guild for the potters. They would look after the potters and they would have their own god and their own kind of worship. And, and, and so you actually had guild worship going on. And it was important that those who were involved in the guild in, were involved in worship in that place as well. And so you, you actually have this pagan worship going on to the gods of the guilds, but you also have a pretty free and open that the Christians could worship how they want. They weren't being persecuted. But if you wanted to trade, you wanted to be in the business of merchant, then you actually had to participate in each of those guilds. And there was an expectation you would participate in what the guild was doing. And that was worshipping of their gods and all that went with it. And we know back in the time and all those kind of things, often that was, was uh, eating foods that were sacrificed to, to the idols there. And, and we hear that referenced within the passage that Kerry has just read for us. We, we also know that there was temple sex that was a part of that. And we just need to kind of keep that in mind and that's clearly referenced um, through the Jezebel passage. So let's go to Jezebel for a moment. Uh, in order to kind of understand this, and, and so often we can actually jump into Jezebel and, and go, and you, and you will have heard people use it. Well, actually, let, let me not assume that you all heard people use. You may hear people use, you're such a Jezebel, which means you're, you're flirtatious, you're, you're open, you're sexually promiscuous, that kind of thing. And it, it's been linked with, with that through this passage. But if we actually understand the history of the name and history where it comes from and the code that is being used so that we can understand it more deeply as a church is that we actually need to understand the history of the name of Jezebel and where this is coming from. If we go into the Old Testament, into 1 Kings 16, you'll actually find there the story of the, the, the king of Israel, Ahab, who marries Jezebel. Uh, and, and it's actually the combination of Ahab and Jezebel is really important for us to actually understand as we start unpacking what the message to the church at Thyatira was all about. Let me just delve into it. The king, the king Ahab is said to have actually been um, more evil in the sight of the Lord than any other kings before him. And he married Jezebel, and then actually began to worship not God, but the God of Baal. And he built temples and he built altars to this God that Jezebel brought from her country. 
There's a couple of interesting things to this story of Ahab and Jezebel that speak into our understanding um, for us today. See, Ahab was the king and he was overindulged all of his life. Whatever he wanted, he basically got. Um, and he didn't actually need to take any responsibility for anything. Um, everything was done for him. This is, you know, it's, it's important for us to actually understand that, that he was actually self-centred, he was passive, he was expecting that if he wanted something, it would happen. And if it didn't happen, he got grumpy and sullen about it. Um, and all those people around him would actually have to make it happen for him. Jezebel, on the other hand, was, was kind of downtrodden, and especially because of the way women were treated in those times. Um, but was actually married to Ahab for political reasons. Ahab actually didn't want to go to war with his surrounding neighbours and wanted peace. He didn't want to have to do anything. He just wanted peace and a cushy life and to continue on. So he made these treaties with those kingdoms around him and one of those kingdoms meant that he married, for political reasons, Jezebel. But Jezebel wanted influence and wanted power. She knew that she had a weak-willed king in front of her, but wanted power and, and control over things. And if we actually want to understand how much Jezebel wanted this and how she worked this, we read in 1 Kings 21 uh, the story of Naboth's vineyard. And King Ahab basically, um, this vineyard was right next to his palace and King Ahab goes, I, I want your vineyard. Naboth, because I want to turn it into a garden. I don't want it, your vineyard there. I just want that. And so overindulged. Somebody needs to make it. He got upset and grumpy because Naboth actually didn't want to give it to him. It was actually a father's inheritance, the property there. He didn't want to give it to him. And so basically he's grumpy and sullen, but here comes Jezebel and connivingly uses the power and position to create a decree and has Naboth killed. And then says to Ahab, go up and take your, your vineyard that's all for you because the owner is no longer with us, is dead. Here's a recipe for leading astray completely. You've got a self-indulgent, weak-willed king and you've got a, somebody that wants influence and power working together. And you can see what happens. They lead astray. They lead the people of Israel astray. And that is why I said that King Ahab and Jezebel led the people astray more than anywhere else. So that's a bit of an understanding about that. what is really important for us in terms of the city. It wasn't under persecution, but in order for them to trade, they kind of needed to be a part of the guilds or maybe not part of the guilds. If they really wanted to make a living, they needed to be part of that. And then you've got this, this name that comes up of a prophetess that comes and, and gives a word to the church to make it easy for them. And so here's the thing. It's really easy for us to focus on the sexual nature of temple worship and leading people astray with Jezebel, but see deception was actually at the heart of the message to the church. Deception is the thing that had caused this church to go astray. 
I want to hone in on this for us. I want to hone in on what is the underlying issue it had for the church at Thyatira, and that's deception. So let's just first of all start with uh, Revelation 2 verse 19. And it says this, I know all the things you do. This is, this is Jesus speaking to the church here, prophetically speaking to the church here. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement of all of these things. This is the praise section that we have in each of these sections here found in the Bible for each of the churches. Jesus always praises them. The church is praised for their love, is praised for their faith, is praised for their service, is praised for their endurance of keeping things going and improving on each of those aspects. What a wonderful praise. You know, if we were a church and we had Jesus praise us for our love, our faith, uh, you know, wouldn't we be going, that's wonderful? Many, many, many churches today pride themselves on the fact that they show love show love to their neighbours, show love to their people within the church, they show love to their community, they show love openly to whatever is coming in front of them. Many churches and many, many churches, they have faith and they have service that they do. They provide service to the community around them. They, they open up their doors and feed the hungry and clothe the naked. And these are all great things. They provide, yet here's the thing, they continually deceive themselves by only looking at the areas that are doing well and sweeping aside the areas where they fall. And that is what has happened at the church at Thyatira. They were looking at what they were doing well but sweeping aside the stuff they weren't. You know, here's one of the things that we do in the church and, and it's not a good thing and I, I don't want to repent of doing this. And, and this is what we do so often as a church. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm not just talking about here. I'm not talking about just me as an individual. I'm talking much bigger and broader. We tend to want to weigh up the good that we do, the, you know, the love that we have, the faith that we have, the service that we give. We want to weigh that up and go, aren't we doing wonderfully? Yeah, no, we're falling over in this area. But look at this. Don't look here. Look here. And we weigh it up. And if the good outweighs the bad, then it's all right. That is deception on the biggest scale that we can possibly imagine. We need to actually understand where we are failing and we need to address that. Yes, we need to continually improve on doing our good, but we need to understand where we are failing and where we are deceiving ourselves each and every time. What is our blind side? What are the things that we are not seeing? What are the things that we just don't want to air out, the dirty laundry? See, God calls us wholeheartedly, openly, everything. Bring all of ourselves to God's purpose. Not just part of it, all of ourselves. And here we have the church in Thyatira being deceived by a so-called prophetess, so somebody with a, you know, um, a, a message for them that gives them some spiritual insight. Here the church at Thyatira is being deceived by this prophetess of teaching that, that meant that they could participate 
in the guild worship for the sake of their livelihoods. Now, we, we can kind of get some of that parallel that we'd had from last week's message, the Bergernum, about taking on board of separating our spiritual from our physical and it wouldn't matter. And here, this prophetess is using the same thing. See, as Christians in this city, they, 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 in order for them to make a livelihood, they would have needed to figure out how they related with the guilds. And often it, was a cha- often it would have been a challenge for them to have left that guild because that meant their livelihood would have gone down. Now think about it for a moment. And here's where I want to bring it for us today in, in this space. We often are challenged to step up and make a difference in our lives. Um, because what would have happened for those people if they'd stepped out of the guild and said, no, I need to maintain my Christian values, I need to maintain my Christian worship and what I do, and I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to worship the idols. I'm not going to take on board what they do in the temples. I'm not going to let that be myself. Yes, their level of livelihood would have decreased, but they could still have been able to make a living but maybe not as much. They might not have had as much money coming in. It may not have been as comfortable or easy. The call of Christ to follow them is never comfortable and is never easy. It wants us to do so much more. It's not about chasing the money. It's not about chasing those. Yeah, and here's the thing, because there's no major persecution going on, they're making a choice about their livelihood and their comfort over following Christ wholeheartedly in all that they do. They've even had examples that God will always be with them, you know, like in Joseph and Esther and Daniel, even in situations where they find it difficult, they, aren't, they will have heard all about them and they know that God will provide and be there. They've had the example of the Apostle Paul who never partook in temple worship but looked after himself by doing his stock trade of being a tent maker. And here he's actually making tents. He may not have had the biggest amount of money and being wealthy or anything like that, but he kept himself alive and going and he kept himself preaching the gospel and he didn't taint himself with the temple worship and being involved in the guilds. And this is what it comes to when, see, here these people are anxious about their livelihood, anxious about losing what they had. And they were deceived by this prophetess saying, it's okay to go and worship, to take on that that philosophical thought of the Nicolotians that you had separated, you can separate your soul and your body, and it doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as your soul is correct. And your soul is in the Christian worship and your body is in the temple worship. And it didn't matter. That's what she was saying. It's okay. And see, here's the thing about deception. There is a kernel of truth in all of this. It's not about what goes into our body that defiles us. It's what comes out. There's the kernel of truth for us. It's It's in the Bible already. And there's the deception that comes because there's that little kernel of truth, but it's manipulated and changed and allowed to come in and going, well, you can be a part of these guilds, these communities. 
Here's the thing, I think. She may have even sold it on the basis that these people could evangelise into the guild communities. They needed to be a part of it and stay a part of those communities and tell them about Jesus. And often we hear that message for us today is to get involved in those things around us for the basis of spreading the good news. And that's important. As I was reading through Revelation, reading through the book by Mike Breen, The Seven Churches, it came to me that this is actually something that, that I needed to preach on. This is something that made me feel uncomfortable. This made me something that I needed to speak up and actually say. See, there's a danger for us as New Beginnings Uniting Church, and I would hazard a guess, no, I'll say it, for the Uniting Church as well in general, that the push to be involved in activities and organisations around us and yes, there is good in that. We need to be careful not to let that message of those people that we're involved change us and change what we know as true found in the Bible. We cannot let the world change the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to remain true to the gospel. Deception comes when we have Ahab and Jezebel combinations. When we have a weak-willed, passive, self-indulgent leadership within the church and an influential, power-hungry outside organisation or individual. This is what happens and this is how churches are deceived. So what does it say in the vision from Jesus to the church about resisting temptation? From Revelation 2, verse 24 to 25, it says this, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. So there's a message for those that haven't taken on board what the prophetess, who they call Jezebel, here, I haven't taken that board. What is it they say? I will ask nothing more of you. I'll ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. So hold tightly onto the good news of Jesus Christ. That he came, he died, and you were saved because of his actions. Not because of the things you did. But hold on to the truth of that gospel there for you. Hold on to the truth that we, we need to love our God, God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And we do need to love our neighbour as ourselves, but it does not mean we need to take on board our neighbour as ourselves. We don't take on board what they have. We love them, but we don't need to take on board their worship. This is what happened with Jezebel. She brought worship of another God into the kingdom. Jezebel here is bringing on worship of the guilds into the church. False teaching, deception. So I want to give you three warning signs 
that we know that we are being deceived, that will help us understand that we are being deceived. See, God will always provide a warning um, signs that we are straying away from the way, the truth, and the life, which is Jesus. And here it is. The first is the conscience. Have you ever been in a time when you've been thinking of making a decision, doing something, and, and just there's a lack of inner peace about that decision? It's churning you up. It's making you feel uncomfortable. It's making you want to question whether this is right or wrong. That is your conscience. That is the Holy Spirit working in you going, this is not right. And we need to be aware and mindful of that happening in our lives, of listening to our conscience speak to us. Am I going to do the wrong thing? And, and, and this is the thing that we do. It's so often it's so easy for us to get so close to the edge to, to go, yeah, I just want to test this. I just want to see what it's like. I just want to take on board this. It, I, I describe the behaviour that we have often like um, we like living on the boundaries, on the edge um, within, for many people within the Christian faith. Rather than being centred in the gospel, we love to live right on the edge of the boundary and, and because we want to push whether it's acceptable to God or not or whether it's more for me or not. And so as we're right on the edge with the boundary, it's really easy for us just to step over. And we ask the question, have we stepped over and out of God's boundary? Well, nothing's happened, so we step out further. And we go further and further because we're being deceived to move away by playing at the edge. Our conscious tells us we're about to step over and wants us to pull back. That's an important first thing. The second thing is that we'll have challenge. We have friends that will start to talk to you and saying that you might be doing the wrong thing. I've seen this. And this is a challenge for us as the church and as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be willing to say to people, actually, this is the wrong thing. We're going in the wrong direction. This is the wrong place that we're doing. So we need to be challenged by our friends. So first of all, the conscience there, then there's a challenge by our friends and the friends that know the Lord, the friends that know the Bible, the friends that know and have centred in the faith will help us know when we are going out of bounds, when we are moving off, when we are being decepted by other things. So you might be saying, I want to go and do this ministry out into here and I want to bring this back and I want to, I want to have all these different elements of what they do in the world, and I want it part of our worship. That is deception starting to take hold. When we start bringing other elements of the world, of secular life, of other worship, of other gods into our worship, that is deception. And then the third thing is conviction. As you read through the Bible, as you read through God's word, it will reveal truth to, to us about the world around us, about life, about us as individuals and about our church and our actions. And the Bible does convict us. See, as I was reading through Revelation, it convicted me to go, I needed to preach on this. I needed to come and be open and honest and talk about how our churches are sometimes being led astray and being deceived by these things. See, being a follower of Jesus Christ 
being a Christian is a whole of life change to us. It's not just a portion. I'll just have my Sunday best and just this little moment. It's a whole of life change. It's not this one hour on Sunday. It's all 24-7. It's all of us, all the time. That's what God wants. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. It's not when it's convenient. It's when it's most inconvenient that we need to step up and say what's true. And finally, I love how each time this message to the church is wrapped up with this statement from Revelation 2, verse 29. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. This is my prayer for us as a church, as individuals, that we may listen with our ears to the Holy Spirit speaking into our lives about what we are being deceived. What things have we made more important than our love of Jesus Christ? What things have we made more important that we are sacrificing on that altar rather than following Christ and Christ's love and message to make disciples of all nations? baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what we are called to do. And we are called to love our neighbour as, our, as ourselves. This is so important and such a central part of who we are. My prayer for our church, my prayer for New Beginnings, my prayer for the Uniting Church, my prayer for the church is that we'll follow God all the days of our lives in every aspect, that we will be willing and honest to stand up when we are being deceived, and to repent of those. So let us just pray. Let us come into prayer right now.